Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good. Are you guys all enjoying the construction on Spring Lake as much as I am? Isn't that, isn't that the best? It's like every day you, do, you drive in Spring Lake, it's God just tr- making you more patient, right? It's an opportunity to, to lean into patience. So I'm so thankful for the construction on exchange. Not really. Um, but do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to Mark 10? We're going to be in Mark 10 this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles right now who'd love to get a copy of God's Word uh, to you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love you to keep it. It's our gift to you, and if you're visiting with us for the first time, my name is Calvin. I'm one of the pastors here and just so honored and thankful that you'd spend part of your weekend with us. Hope you are enjoying yourself, and before we uh, jump into God's Word... This morning, I want to bring you up on some exciting news. Um, Some of you who've been with us for a long time, man, this feels like forever ago now, but back in 2014, our church planted Harvest Bible Chapel in Lamuru, Kenya. And some of you guys know James Amwamba. Some of you guys have been on missions trips there and have actually been to Lamuru helping serve that church. James is just a dear, sweet, godly man. And in 2016, um, we came to you and our our church raised some money for them to do a, a church building project. And our church raised... $300, and that was partnered with another church planning organization who matched that gift. So we were able, between the two of us, to give James $600,000 to begin a church building project in Lemuru. And here's what we learned in that process. Um... Planting or doing a construction project across the world is really, really difficult to manage. And there was a lot of unforeseen bumps, and it was a little bit more expensive than we thought it was going to be. And there was some political corruption that we had to deal with. James actually had his life threatened on occasion if he didn't bribe the right guy or pay off the right person. But here's the good news. It went a few years longer than we were hoping, um, but this past weekend, uh, Pastor James and their church celebrated their first weekend in their new building. So we have some pictures up here that we would love uh, to show you. Yeah, isn't that good news? And um, we, uh, James said he expected that there would be 2,000 people in there um, for their first gathering, so we're just rejoicing with them and all that God's doing. Isn't that picture of the balcony? Like, it is both awesome and a little terrifying, right? You've got balconies on balconies in there, but um, he is doing great, and he just wanted to send along just his thank you and gratefulness for our church and the role we played in that. So God is good, and we're rejoicing with them this week for sure. The other thing I would mention is men. If you're here, you need to be here tonight at 8 o'clock for our Vertical Men rally. We're going to have a time of extended worship, which is just so powerful, and we are going um, to get after some really, really important and good things. Be here tonight, 8 o'clock, no excuses. We really want to see you here. So we are in a series which I'm really loving and I'm enjoying. It's called When God Draws Near. And we're looking at encounters that that people are having with Jesus when Jesus was on earth. And just what an idea that God would come to earth and draw near to his creation. And we're learning so much through this. And we're going to be in Mark 10, verse 17. We're only going to be in six verses. It's a very familiar passage. It's a very short uh, passage, but there's a ton for us to learn. So here's what I would ask you to do. Um, Let's lean into God's word together. I would even ask you right now as you're listening to me talk, would you just be praying, hey, God, I'm open to what you're going to have to say to me today? Because God has a word for all of us right here, right now, believing he's going to move significantly in our hearts. But let's um, follow along as I read Mark 17 through 22. Here's what it says. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. 
And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. All right, the big idea this morning, what I really want to drive home for us is that it is possible for us to have everything right and still be wrong. It is possible for us to, to, to think that we've got it all together, that, that we're doing well enough, that, that we are um, established on our own, doing everything right and still be wrong. This is what we're going to see in, in this young man this morning, a man that thought he had everything right but was still so heartbreakingly wrong. Have you ever had that feeling where you thought you had everything right only to realize you had absolutely everything wrong? Have you ever been there before? Uh, two and a half years ago, um, if you've been a part of our church, you know that in our fall, we have our day-long women's conference, right? And it's a great time where our women gather together, and they worship, and there's teaching, and there's fellowship, and then during that day, it is the men's job to keep the family alive while mom is gone, being filled up and nourished, right? So um, two years ago, I had, we had four kids. Uh, we still have them, thankfully, by God's grace, um, but as a two-year-old Judah... Um, four-year-old Bo at that time, and then my twin girls were six, and I had to watch them while Mary was at the women's conference. And what made this one particularly complex is Bo had just signed up for Little Kickers, which was like an introduction to soccer training class at Shoreline Soccer. So I couldn't just keep the kids at home, and, and you know what I mean, and pad them up and, and make sure they were okay. I actually had to bring them out, and we had to go do something. So I remember in the morning, Mary left early, so I got up, I woke up all the kids, I made breakfast for them, I got them all dressed, I found Bo's little kicker's soccer jersey, got his shin guards on, got the shoes on, got all the iPads for the kids so they would be entertained while Bo was at practice, got them all in the van, drove them to, to Shoreline Soccer, we got in the building, I dropped Bo off at class, and I remember sitting there in that moment where we're Bo's at his class, I'm watching him, all of our kids are sitting on the bench playing on a phone or an iPad, and I'm like, man, I'm nailing this dad thing. Everyone's dressed, everyone's hair's come like, I am destroying it. Like I had everything right. I just had one little thing wrong. And that was I forgot to take Bo to the bathroom before I dropped him off at little kicker's class. So 15 minutes in, all of a sudden I see Bo make a beeline off the field, sprint around, come to me with panic in his eyes. Dad, I have to go potty. So I realize this is an emergency, so I grab him, and I'm running him to the bathroom, and we get in the bathroom, we close the door, and I am too late. He pees in his pants, all over you know, his underwear, his shorts are soaked, there's pee on the ground, I don't have any other changes of clothes for him, this is a disaster, so I do what any self-respecting dad would do, I just take some paper towels, I mop up as much as I can, and I just leave without saying anything to anyone, right? I'm like, I'm so out of here, and then as we're leaving, I'm in the parking lot now, I'm like, kids, come behind me, they're, they're following behind me, they don't know why I'm quickly rushing out, I'm carrying Bo, who's urine soaked, and as I open the car door, Judah unknowingly runs behind where the sliding doors open and gets hit in the head and splits his head open, right? And I was like, 15 minutes ago, everything was going so well, right? Like I had this nailed down and now everything is so wrong. And it's a shame when you get things wrong with your kid, but it's heartbreaking when we get things wrong with Jesus, amen? And we're going to see a guy who, who thought he had everything right, but was so wrong. And I think there's some good warnings for us to process together. So let's look at verse 17. We're going to see how this plays out. We're going to first focus on the, the rich young ruler, and then we're going to turn our focus and attention onto Jesus in a really powerful way that I'm excited about. Verse 17, it says, as he was setting out on his journey, 
a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Okay, the first thing we see, the first thing that this rich young ruler has wrong is that he is in the presence of Jesus, but he still can't see him. Well, think about this. He has gotten face to face with Jesus. And what does he call him? He says, good teacher. Now, Jesus is absolutely a good teacher, but that's not all that Jesus was, and that wasn't his name. His name is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Messiah, and he's like, hey, good teacher. And don't you see Jesus kind of sarcastically try to correct him here? He's like, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Jesus is kind of like graciously being like, you're not all the way there yet. You don't see me for who I am. All right, but not only does he call him by the wrong name, here's what I want you to pay attention to. Um, look how quickly this young man is to make the conversation about himself. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's like, hey, Jesus, let's talk about me. Like, think how crazy that, that scene must have been. He is standing before the creator of the universe, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the one that was coming to take away the sins of the world. He is with him face to face. And he's like, hey, Jesus, let's talk about me. What do I need to do? Like, you know the Bible says that one day we're all gonna stand face to face in front of Jesus, just like this man. And this has been something that I've tried to picture in my mind, and it's really hard for me to even visualize because of how amazing that moment's going to be. But here's what I can promise you. I'm not gonna be talking about me a lot in that moment. I think I'm going to be like in tears on my knees just thanking Jesus for who he is. Did you know that while Jesus was on earth, some of the people who captured his attention most never said a word to him? Did you know that? There's a story in Luke 7 where Jesus is having dinner with the religious leaders and he's at one of the Pharisees' houses and they're, they're talking and they're debating and they're arguing but they're hanging out and it says that a woman from the street, a sinner, came in. This woman was a, a, a prostitute. And it says she was so overwhelmed at Jesus, who was her Messiah, that all she started to do was weep, and she washed Jesus' feet with her hair and with her tears. And the religious leaders are like, Jesus, how can you associate with this woman? Like, what are you doing allowing her to even touch you? And Jesus is like, listen, when I came into your house, you didn't offer me anything. You showed me no honor. This woman has shown me more honor than all of you combined. She's the one that gets it. In the very next chapter in Luke 8, there's a woman who, who has a sickness which, which is causing her to bleed for, for years and years and years. Then it says that Jesus is just passing through a, a crowd and she can't get his attention. She doesn't yell out to him. All she does is grab at his garment, doesn't say a word to him. And he turns around and he's like, who just touched me? And the disciples are like, we're all touching you. It's crowd. He's like, no, no, no. Someone did something different. And then he commends this woman for her faith and he heals her. Didn't say a word. But that's what captured the heart of Jesus. Listen, can I give you a general life principle right now? If you want to have friends, if you want to be well-liked, if you want to be loved, don't make everything about yourself. Like show a genuine interest in other people. Proverbs 22.4 says that the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Like listen, nobody wants to hang out with the person that, that has to talk about themselves for two hours every time you're together. Right? If you want to have allies in the workplace... 
Show a genuine interest in the life of the people you work with. Not just, hey, what do we need to do together or, or how can you help benefit me? Care about the people you work with. Know about their hobbies and their lives and their families. Show a genuine interest and you're going to make yourself allies in the workplace. Here's one. Don't be a boomerang person. You know what I'm talking about? This is something where you know, everything always has to come back and dovetail towards them. Where it's like, hey, how was your weekend? My weekend was fine. Oh, that's great. Let me tell you about mine. It's like people can see through that. They know you don't care about how they're doing. You just want to talk about yourself. Hey, how's your wife doing? Ah, she's not doing great. Oh, that's too bad. My wife's amazing. Right? Like you're not winning yourself any friends. Okay, you need to understand this. This is so important for us today right now. Do you know that you and I are way more like the rich young ruler in this than we would like to admit? We want to make our relationship with Jesus all about ourselves, and I'm going to prove it to you right now. You ready for this? Think about how we talk about our relationship with Christ. Think about the words that we use. You need to understand language is very, very important, and think about how you talk about Jesus. This is what you say. You talk about my relationship with Jesus. You talk about, man, how am I doing in my relationship with God? Right? We talk about our faith. You understand that all of that is self-centric language? We're putting ourself at the focus of our relationship with Jesus. Even in how we talk, we're like the rich young ruler in the language that we use. In John 15, 1 through 5, Jesus says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. What if we really believed that the focus of our relationship with Jesus Christ would just be let's get as near as him as we can possibly be? So rather than talking about my faith and my relationship, what if we just phrased it this way? What is Jesus doing in and through me right now? What if Jesus was the focus? What if we prayed that way? What if instead of going through our agenda and here's what my day looks like and Jesus, can you help me out? What if it was, hey, Jesus, I just want to be near you and I want to be filled with your spirit. And God, if there's something that you would have me do today to honor you and to glorify you, would you make that aware? And I just promise that I'm going to be obedient. I think it would change our lives. But see, we are like the rich young ruler. So naturally, we want to make things about ourselves. He's not alone in this. That's what I want you to see. Okay, look at verse 19. So Jesus answers the man's question. He says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. The second thing we see about the rich young ruler is that he's blinded by his resume. He's blinded by his resume. So Jesus goes into the law and he says, you know, according to the Old Testament, that in order to gain eternal life, you've got to keep the law perfectly. And look at his answer. He's like, Jesus, I'm nailing it, right? I've kept all of these, and not only am I keeping them now, I've kept them from my youth. Like, this is an insane moment in the Bible. You've got a young punk kid standing in front of Jesus, the only perfect man to perfectly keep the law. Jesus never once sinned. And you've got this kid being like, hey, I'm as perfect as you are, Jesus. Like, it is crazy. 
And you see this young man is just simply blinded by his resume. Church, you need to hear this. You know you're struggling with pride when in the stories you tell, you always tend to be the hero of every story. And everyone else is an idiot or wrong or screwed up, and you're the one trying to hold everything together. When you can't ever admit that you were wrong, you know you're struggling with pride, and a fall is about to come. And when I was in college, my sophomore year, when I would come back from school in Chicago, I'd come home and I'd work at Great Harvest Bread Company, and I was a baker. So that means I'd wake up at 3.30 every morning, and you get to the, the bakery, and you start with just yeast and water, and you make it all from scratch. There's like 10 different kinds of bread you would make every day, and you got to remember all the ingredients, and then once the, the, the bread is rising, then the kneaders come in, and they knead it, and then you put it in the oven, and then you were in charge of baking it. So you're there from start to finish. And in the process of baking bread, the one thing you can't do is forget to add salt. If you're baking bread, if you know this, if you make bread, if you forget to add salt, the yeast won't stop rising, the bread won't have any flavor, the whole thing needs to be thrown out, it's ruined, and every time you make bread on a large scale, literally every time you forget to add salt, you're costing your company hundreds and hundreds of dollars. The the problem is, is you've been up since 3.30 in the morning, and you're really busy, and so every once in a while, people would occasionally forget to add salt, and you'd have to throw the batch out, and the manager would always get frustrated with you. That was like the one thing you couldn't do. So it was Friday of Coast Guard Festival, like the biggest day of our whole year. We're making double the amount of bread that we usually would, and um, I'm making sweets that day, so I'm not baking the bread, but one of my best friends from high school, his name was Ben, he was the baker, and we're both soccer players, we're both competitive, so as any good friends would do, we spent the morning arguing about who the better baker was, right? Right? who makes the best bread, who, who, who's better at their job. And I remember Ben saying, listen, Cal, I'm so much better than you. I've worked here for two years. I've never once forgotten to add salt. I, I, I've, made, I've, I've never once screwed up. We've never had to throw any of my bread out. I, I'm the best. And here's what was just the best. As he's saying that, and we wouldn't find this out for a couple hours later, as he's saying that, he forgot to add salt to our cinnamon chip bread which is by far our most popular bread. Dutch people love their sweets. I don't know if you knew that or not, but cinnamon chip is like the number one seller. And we had a double batch. So like a couple thousand dollars worth of bread that he'd forgotten to add salt. So a couple hours later, we noticed that the yeast is still rising and rising. And then we taste the dough and the dough is bad. So um, on Coast Guard Friday, the most important day of the year, we had to throw out our biggest selling bread. And here's what was so perfect about it. In that moment when we're throwing it into the garbage, Ben's parents show up to the bakery for the first time ever in two years to see how his day's going, right? I was so happy. Like, I was loving my life right now, right? And he went from, man, I'm, I'm amazing, I'm the hero, to a crash in like two hours that was just so perfect. This rich young ruler was so impressed with himself. Like, think about this. He's standing before Jesus saying, I have kept the law perfectly. What a bad spot to be in in regards to where his heart was. So I've uh, gotten involved in this program this year. It's a year-long program. What they've done is is they've paired me with five other young pastors um, from around the country. And and what they've done, so they've taken six of us, 
and they've paired us with mentor pastors. And these are guys who have preached for, or pastored for 20 or 30 years, have led large churches, and we spend three weeks a year together. And this week I was in Naperville visiting with my mentor pastors, and then we do some web conference stuff. But it's basically just a year where some guys who have been farther down the line than me just want to invest and pour in to me as a young leader. And so one of my mentors is a man by the name of Larry Osborne. And he's a pastor out in San Diego. He leads a church of like 25,000 people. He does a ton of stuff on Right Now Media, huge, fruitful ministry. And I'm like, man, I get to spend three days with this guy? Like, this guy has more leadership wisdom on his left pinky nail than I do in my whole body. This is amazing. And so we were down there in Naperville, and we were just hanging out, and we were doing a Q&A. And one of the other young pastors said, hey, what, what are some leadership wisdom that you would impress onto us in our stage of pastoring? And here's what Larry said thought this was so good. He goes, you know what? One of the things that God blessed most in me is he said, I just never really felt the need to always have to win or to always be right. He says, so often we feel like if we admit that we've made a mistake or if we admit that we're wrong or that we don't have all the answers, that that's somehow a weakness. But he goes, in reality, I've always thought, I've always found that people respond way better to humility and honesty than this facade of having to always be right all the time. So can I lovingly ask you a question right now? When's the last time you've admitted you've screwed up to someone? When's the last time you said, you know what, I was wrong. I I need you to forgive me. I I hurt you. My attitude was wrong. What I said was hurtful. I made a wrong choice and decision. Listen, if you always have to be the hero, if you always have to, to be right and can never admit that we're sinners saved by grace. Um, just like the rich young ruler, you're, you're becoming blinded to your resume. And, and look here, Jesus isn't impressed by your resume at all, but man, does he respond to humility. Third thing we see in this text is that this rich young ruler, he's unknowingly become a slave. Look at verse 21. It says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So so Jesus says, all right, um, you you think you've done everything right, but I'm going to go after your heart right now. And, And he says, listen, the one thing you lack is I want you to trust me, and what that means for you is I want you to sell everything that you have. All right, now you need to understand this. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that in order to be saved that you've got to give everything away to the poor or or that that you've got to um, do that at all. In fact, the Bible in many places says that inheritance is a blessing and that wisdom is a tool that with use with the wise can do great things. It wasn't about wealth specifically. It was about this man's heart. You, You see, Jesus knew that this guy's idol was that he had everything. He had everything. He thought he had done everything. And he says, no, no, no. This is the one thing you lack. This is in your heart where you're not trusting me. Come follow me, but give away everything you have. And here's what's so sad. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So you've got this guy who entered the room full of confidence, leave with his head down and defeated because the things that he had had made him a slave. And listen, I say this all the time, and I worked hard this week to kind of come up with a new way to say it, because I'm hoping it connects with some of you in a fresh way. Listen, you need to hear this. Good things make wicked gods. Good things are absolutely wicked gods. Listen, money is not a bad thing. 
You, you can advance the kingdom with money. You can pass it down to your children. It is not a wicked or evil thing. But how many people in your life do you know have sacrificed their family and their life at the altar of just a little bit more money? It's a good thing, but man, is it a wicked God, right? Sex, sex was created by God to be a gift and a blessing in marriage. It is a good thing, but man, is it a God for so many people in our country, and it is chewing people up, spitting them out. It's wicked. It's going to enslave, and it's going to destroy, right? Think about friends, wanting to be well-liked, wanting to have friends. Like, that's a, that's a good thing. It's good to want to be loved and have close relationships, but when that becomes God, being popular, right, all of a sudden your life becomes filled with fear and anxiety because you're like, man, am I popular enough? Do I have enough friends? Do people really like me? And you find yourself doing things that you would never do for, for the sake of having friends or saying things that you would never say and know are wrong because you want to impress the people in the room. I heard it said this way, and I, I thought this was really powerful, fear and anxiety, they have this unbelievable ability to make your life's plans for you, right? So, so because I, I want to be so well-liked, rather than enjoying my family and my kids, I, I'm attached to a smartphone because I want to keep growing how many followers I have or I want to see what everyone else was doing and I'm locked up by fear of missing out, right? It's not wrong to want friends, but man, is it a wicked God. It just enslaves, right? Hobbies can do that, right? What about potential? Right? I think one of the idols we bow down to most in our society is the idol of potential. And we do it for ourselves, and then we do it for our kids. And there's this thought that if you don't reach your potential, man, you're a failure. So it's like, man, I've got to get perfect grades, and I've got to play every sport, and my kids got to do every activity because it's my job to help them reach their potential. Here's the problem. We live in a broken and fallen world, and that means all of us are going to fall short. And so many of us are tripped up in our relationship with God because we don't believe that he knows us and loves us right as we are because we don't feel like we've met our potential yet. So we think we can't be loved by God because we haven't lived up to our own standards. And here's another way that this trips out. So many families I've talked to and it's like, well, you know what? Um, I know my kids should come to youth group, but um, you know, they gotta get straight A's and they've got homework or they've got this sporting event. And it's like, listen, Whenever you say that their spiritual life can be secondary to this other pursuit, like you just understand what you're communicating, right? We can just sacrifice so much at the idol of potential. What about comfort? It's not bad to be comfortable. It's not, it's not bad to be at peace, but, but when comfort becomes a God, guess what we do? Whenever we're stressed, whenever we're uncomfortable, whenever life's difficult, we self-medicate. And maybe that's with alcohol. Maybe that's with prescriptions. Maybe that's with Netflix, but it's like rather than pressing into the spirit and asking God to help us, we just run to whatever medicates us and that makes us a slave and we become addicted. Listen, good things make wicked gods. We were created to worship the one true God, the only God that leads us into freedom, that gave himself for us so we could be free. Every other God calls us to give ourselves to it so that it can make us a slave. Good things, wicked gods. This rich young ruler unknowingly had become a slave to his possession. All right, so here's what I want to do now. I want to turn our attention from the rich young ruler and what he had wrong, and I want to see how Jesus um, interacts with this man right now when he draws near. There's so much cool stuff here. So look at verse 21. Here's what it says. It says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. 
Because isn't that amazing? Like if you write notes in your Bible, underline that, highlight that, circle that. Like that's an amazing verse. Right, right. This guy is just a punk young kid who doesn't see Jesus for who he is, thinks he has it all together. And what is Jesus' response? He sees him and he loves him. Right, if you were with us last week, you know we went through the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, and that same language is used in how Jesus views Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It says in John eleven five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Right? That makes sense to me. They were Jesus' best friends. They were his people. It doesn't surprise me that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he's like, man, I really love them. What surprises me is he uses that exact same language for some punk kid who thinks he has everything together, who he didn't have a relationship with. I think about the night when Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Here's what it says in John 13. You need to read this. This is amazing. It said this. Now before the feast, of, or the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, listen, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. So in the very night that Jesus was betrayed, it says that he loved the people that he was with even till the end. Now, now that sounds good, but think about that, what, what that meant practically. That meant that the last night that Jesus was on earth, he had dinner with Judas, the guy that was going to betray him. And then he had dinner with Peter and John, Peter who would deny that he was ever Lord or that he ever knew Jesus in just a few hours, and John Mark who was just going to get out of there. He was going to run away. And what did Jesus do? Like if it was me, if I know I have one meal left on earth, I'm not spending it with the guy that I know is going to betray me and abandon me. But not only did Jesus eat with them, he washed their feet. He served them. And then he walked him, them through communion. One of the most important earmarks of the church over the last 2,000 years. He loved them till the end. All right, here's what that means. That means that there's no one in here who has the excuse to say that Jesus could never love me right here as I sit. Listen, maybe you're here and you've walked with Jesus faithfully for decades. You're like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You know that Jesus loves you. Maybe you're here and you feel like this rich young ruler who makes everything about himself and is prideful and tends to be arrogant. Jesus saw the man and he loved him. Maybe you're like, man, I've just betrayed Jesus and I've done so much and I just haven't lived out my faith. I've been so hypocritical. Jesus knew what his disciples were going to do and he loved them till the end. No matter how you come in here, Jesus loves you. I promise you that because his love is perfect. It's not like our love. So what we see is that Jesus lovingly engages this man. Right? Like he didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to tell him anything. He didn't have to speak into his heart. But it says that Jesus saw him, loved him, and engaged this man in conversation. Second thing we see is that Jesus lovingly confronts our hearts. That Jesus lovingly confronts our hearts. Verse 21. And Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Okay, so you have to remember Jesus is dealing with a man who thinks he has everything. And has done everything. And what Jesus does is he lovingly confronts the man's blind spot. And he says, You think you have it all. I know you though because I created you. Here's the one thing you don't have. All right, so this is how God's spirit works, right? It's like, how do I know what my blind spot is? 
right, right? If it's truly a blind spot, how am I supposed to see it? Isn't that the definition of a blind spot? And I don't know what the thing in your life is that competes with God for your worship and your affection, but God does, but Jesus does. So what he does is, is in his spirit, he reveals that to our hearts as we lean into his word. So here's a question that I'm praying God may use to help reveal what a blind spot or an idol is in your life. Can I ask you this question? What's the thing in your life that you justify the most? What's the thing in your life that you always justify? Like, listen, we as humans are professionals at justifying what we know is unhealthy and wrong, right? It's like we're on a diet and we know we're not supposed to have any sweets. We're trying to eat healthy, trying to lose some weight, trying to be on a diet. And then we're at small group and Nancy brings over some cookies for small group. And I know I'm not supposed to eat them, but they look so good. So guess what we tell ourselves? Well, man, Nancy's just going to be so offended if I don't eat a cookie, and I want to be a loving small group member, so I think the Lord would have me eat this cookie, right? We justify it, and then we have one, and it's like, oh, man, that was good, and then we're like, you know what, I've really been good all week. Like, another one's not going to hurt, right? I'm just going to get back on the, the, the train tomorrow. We justify what we know is unhealthy. Maybe it's work. Right? It's like, listen, I, I know this season work is crazy and it's causing me to neglect my family, but we're going to get to a spot where I can have tons of time with, with my kids and, and I just got to get through this season and I'm just going to sacrifice now to reap the benefits later. Right? We can justify it. Right? Maybe it's, man, um, I know I got to get up early for school tomorrow, but I just, one more show. The, you know, I, I, the, the episode's so good, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll skip breakfast because that's a smart idea before school, just like one more show. Um, maybe it's spending outside of your budget. And it's like, man, you know, I, I've been on budget so well all month. And, and listen, these shoes are going to change my life. They're going to make all my problems go away. The Lord would, like, have me have these shoes. I'm free in Christ. Maybe it's Technology right? Maybe we live with a phone attached at our hip, and, and rather than taking healthy breaks from it on occasion, it's like, well, that's my, my business, and I have to be on my, my phone to, in, in order to keep up with, with, with everything that's going on. Listen, if you're at a place where you can't put away your phone for like six hours and enjoy life, you're justifying what you know to be unhealthy. Everyone would say it's unhealthy to be addicted to technology, but then when it comes to us, we tend to justify why we need to be addicted to technology. Listen, I don't know what your thing is, but Jesus does. So what he's doing right now, whether you want to admit it or not, or whether you want to be open to it or not, and that makes all the difference, is he's going to place on your heart, he's going to lovingly confront, where is your heart at this morning? What is the thing this week that you've been running to as God in place of Jesus and then the third thing that we're going to see him do is he's going to lovingly call us to faith. He's going to lovingly call us to faith. Here's the amazing thing about this story. Look at what Jesus actually says to the rich young ruler. He says, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. But look at this. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. So we always think about this story and we focus on what Jesus is calling this man to give up. And that's how we view our lives. It's like, man, well, if I'm going to follow Jesus in this area, that means I can't do this or I can't do that or I'm going to have to do this. But what we fail to realize is Jesus is calling the man to something better. 
He's saying, if you follow me, you're going to have riches. They're just not going to be stale riches on this earth that, that are going to just get torn away or stolen or that you can't take with you. I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you riches in heaven which are eternal, which can't be taken away. And then he invites him to be a disciple. Hey, come and follow me. Not only does he say, I'm going to give you exactly what you want, just in a way better way, but I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you access to me. Listen, Jesus is not robbing this man of anything. He's calling him to something better. And listen, whenever Jesus asks you to walk in faith in an area of your life, he's not taking anything from you. He's actually calling you to your best life. He's calling you to where true life really is. Like, here, here's what I mean. You stay with me. No matter what you're dealing with today, do you know that Jesus is your answer? No matter how you come in here, so maybe you're here and you're tired. I, I talked with a man uh, before the service on Saturday night, and he's like, man, I'm just so worn out. I had a long week of work, and then I coached baseball for Muskegon High School, and we had a tournament all day, and, and I'm just worn out. I'm tired. Right? Maybe you're hearing, like, I'm just exhausted. We're in graduation season, and school's winding down, and there's a ton going on. You know what Jesus says to you? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you know that there's a deeper, better rest than just a two-and-a-half-hour nap on a Sunday afternoon? That there is real rest in knowing that I am known and loved by God, and nothing can take that away from me, and he is with me till the end? If you're tired, Jesus is your answer. Maybe you're here and you just feel out of place. You're like, I just don't know where I really fit in in this season of my life and I'm struggling with what I should be doing or where I should be going, right? Well, what does God say to us? He says, I know the plans I have for you, right? He is our author. He holds our future in his hand and he's saying, listen, you don't have to figure this out on your own. I'm with you and I'm gonna walk this journey with you and if you trust me, I'm going to lead you to green pastures and still waters, Maybe you're here and you're lonely and you're mourning the loss of a friendship or you've just moved and you're trying to fit into a new school or a new community. What is the last thing that Jesus tells his disciples? He says, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. So there is not a moment where you are actually alone if you're in Christ, but you have something so much better than a friend. You've got a savior and you've got his spirit and he's with you. He promises that. And guess what? He's got a 100% track record of keeping his promises. He's with you. Maybe you're here and you feel defeated. And you're like, man, I'm running through the same brick wall in my life over and over again. And there's this sin that just crouches over me and I can never seem to, to get on the other side of it. You know that Jesus is your victory? That victory is not going to be found in you just trying harder? but it's you actually abiding in Christ like he calls us to and saying, Jesus, I just need more of you and I wanna get near to you, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of us and that that power is what crushed the head of Satan. There's real victory and transformation to be found, but it's only in Christ. He's your answer. Maybe you're here and you're joyful. And you're like, you know what, life's going great. My kids are flourishing. My marriage is good. School is going amazing. I'm about to, to graduate, pumped about my GPA. Listen, do you know that he is the giver of every good gift? Do you know why our worship is always or so often stale? 
Like we come into this place and we're singing about Jesus and it's hard for us to engage. You know what the secret is? It's because so often we want to take credit for our own success rather than reflect that back on our Savior and saying, you are the giver of everything good. And so the things that I'm celebrating in my life, ultimately that should reflect in my praise for you. It's because we don't believe that he is our giver. Are you sick? If you're sick, Jesus is your healer. Um, I could tell you multiple stories from this past week where Jesus has miraculously healed people in our church, where they've been at the hospital. The doctors have said, I don't know what happened, but your blood count should not have changed like it did overnight, but you're healthy. I don't understand it. And the person was like, well, I believe in the power of prayer. He heals. Maybe you have a broken relationship that you're grieving. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you're in a place that's stale. You know that Jesus says that he's near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit? That he's near to you. That if you're here and you're grieving, listen, look here. Every sin that has been committed against you in your past and in your present, you understand that that same sin was committed against Jesus, right? Because he created you and you're his prized creation. So there is no one who shares in your hurt with you like Jesus does. And it says that he is close to you and that he will wipe away every tear that you've ever cried. He's your answer. Maybe you're here and you're entering the last stage of your life. You know, you can walk in full confidence that Jesus is gonna walk that road with you hand in hand until you see him in eternity. From our first breath to our last, Jesus is our answer because we were created by him and for him. And what he's saying is, listen, I'm calling you wherever you're at to what's best for you. He's gonna call you to faith. But here's the thing, the rich young ruler, you see the tragedy about him, it's not just that he was enslaved to what he had. At the end of the day, he couldn't trust that Jesus was better. So just like Jesus is lovingly calling this man to faith, He's lovingly calling us right now. What is that thing in your life that's competing with him for God over your life, for first place in your heart? I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I can even just sense right now in this moment that, that there's a certain amount of heaviness here, right? And it's, listen, it's a good thing when the Lord confronts our heart and says, hey, here's what you're running to for joy and peace and comfort, and that thing will not provide it like I can. So here's what I'm gonna ask us to do. I'm gonna ask us to take a moment and just respond to the Lord in faith, take the step of faith that Jesus is calling to. So here's what I'd ask. If you're here and you're like, man, I've really resonated with God's word today, and I've just see a lot of myself in this rich young ruler, and I know that the Lord is calling me to faith in a specific area of my life, and I want to respond in faith and in obedience to God. Would you just raise your hand right now in the quietness of this room? Yeah, raise them up high. There's something that happens when what's going on inward becomes an outward expression, and I just want to be able to pray for you right now. Yeah, there's a lot of hands up. I'm going to give you a couple more seconds. When you hear the voice of the Lord, don't harden your hearts. All right, you can put them down. I just want to pray over you right now. Dear Heavenly Father, God, God, we know that you're here. And I know that you saw people, even in this moment, just take steps of faith and say, God, I want to respond to you in faith. 
God, I believe that, that your way is best. So God, here's what I'm asking. I'm asking that you would honor that request. I'm praying that you would show up in the lives of the people who, who need you right now in this moment. God, would you give us a strength outside of ourselves to trust you and follow you? We know in our flesh we are so weak and prone to wander. God, we need your help. God, I'm asking right now, would you make the taste of sin bitter in our mouths? Would you cause the, the luster of sin and temptation just to look really, really bad to us? And, and would you make yourself sweet to our eyes? I'm just thankful that we can come here, that we can open your word, that week after week, once again, you are drawing us back to what will give us life. You're so good to do that. You know exactly what we need, Lord. Thank you. We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.